I invite you to turn with me in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 1, uh, verse 15 through 23, or you can find this passage printed on the insert in your bulletin. Uh, We're going to read that together. Last week we started a series that's going to take us through a significant portion of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, and we just kind of scratched the surface of those beginning verses, um, but it, those verses are just packed with so much, but within those verses, Paul wants us to think out our identity in the, in the Lord Jesus Christ, our glorious identity in Jesus, that we are children of the Father, that we are redeemed in the blood of Christ, that we are sealed by the Spirit. You see, in this letter, Paul, he, he's diving in to the mystery of the gospel and of the church, And he's pulling us along as he explores that mystery. And so this morning, we're going to continue in that exploration as we look together at Paul's prayer for the Christians at Ephesus, for the church at Ephesus, in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. So let's give our attention to God's holy and inerrant word. Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints... I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know Him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which He has called you, the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and His incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of His mighty strength, which He exerted in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under His feet and appointed Him to be head over everything for the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him, who fills everything in every way. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's go before him now and ask for his help. Father, we come before you to ask for your help. Your help that in hearing your word, we would also understand your word. But even beyond that, beyond the mere understanding of it with our minds, we pray that You, by Your Spirit, would take this Word and write it upon our hearts, have it applied to our lives in very concrete, very real ways. We pray this because we recognize that we are a needy people. We're made by our Creator, made to hear Your voice made to live and move and have our being in You. And so we pray that You would help us to hear. And we don't pray wishing, we pray with great hope. We pray with great confidence because we know that when You speak, when You open Your mouth to speak, You call worlds, You call the universe into being. Father, we know from reading the Gospels, that when Your Son, God in the flesh, came and walked this earth, 
It was by the power of His voice that He spoke to the blind and they received their sight, to the deaf and they were made to hear, to the lame and they were made to walk. The voice of one so powerful that He called into the tombs themselves and by the power of His voice raised the dead to life. Father, we pray that You would do that for us this morning. Open our eyes to see. Unstop our ears. Call us from death into life in Jesus. We pray this, pleading with You, because we recognize that we all come facing different things in this life. Some come into this room anxious. Some come into this room full of doubts and questions. Others come into this room wondering where You are in the midst of their pain, in the midst of their struggles. Some of us come into this room and our questions aren't mainly philosophical, but are very, very personal, wondering, wondering if it can be true that you love a people like us because we know how broken we really are. Father, I pray for all of us this morning as we look at your word that you would help us to see that we're really all the same despite what it may look like on the outside in our lives, the different circumstances that we face, the truth is we're all far more broken than we know. Far more fallen than we could even imagine. And so we all need the same thing. We need Jesus. We need to know that though we're far more broken than we can imagine, in Him we are also far more loved and far more secure and far more accepted than we could have ever dreamed possible. Help us, we pray, to see and to hear this good news. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, I know it's a few years old, uh, but most of you have probably seen the movie before, the movie Seabiscuit. Maybe you've seen it by now. Um, But it's this story, right, about this famous racehorse named Seabiscuit in the Depression era, just to jog your memory, and what makes this story unique, I guess, is that this horse, Seabiscuit, right, was not initially considered to be a quality racehorse at all. In fact, this horse was kind of just written off, he was treated very poorly, if you watch the movie, seen the story, all that kind of stuff. He's really just used as a sort of prop for the training of other horses, racehorses, actually. Well, there's this one scene where um, the, the wealthy investor... Mr. Howard, right? He, he, he wants to go and get a look at a horse that he's going to potentially buy. Um, and so he's decided that he wants to buy this racehorse, so he brings this trainer along with him as, as they look at this horse. And the trainer wants him to look at this horse, Seabiscuit. Um, the trainer thinks he has potential and all this kind of stuff. And the, there's this jockey in the story. You remember, his name's Red Pollard. And, and Red Pollard's job in this scene is really to get on this horse and ride it on the track and kind of show it off to the potential buyers. And so here's the scene. you got Mr. Howard and his wife and the trainer, and they're standing at the edge of the track as Red Pollard gets on this horse and begins to ride him on the track. And it just looks ridiculous, if you remember this. I mean, the horse is just weaving all over the track. It won't run in a straight line. It's just... It's chaotic. It, it just looks ridiculous. And uh, it doesn't look like a racehorse at all, right? Mr. Howard's wife, she jokingly says, you know, well, you know, he seems pretty fast. Um, and the trainer says, he had in every direction, though. Um, 
And uh, it, it just looks like a disaster. Now, all of that to set up this quote by the trainer who starts to pontificate and talk about this horse in that scene. And he says this, He's so beat up, it's hard to tell what he's like. I just can't help feeling they've got him so screwed up, running in, in a circle, he's forgotten what he was born to do. He just needs to learn how to be a horse again, is what he says. And so if you've seen this movie, you know what they do with the horse. They get him off the track. They, they hire Red Pollard, this jockey, and they take him out to the countryside. And he just runs wide open. And somewhere in that run, the horse is reminded of what he was born to do and be. And he just takes off like a bullet, running through the countryside. See, in this section, Paul, he, he tells his readers that he's praying one main thing for them in verse 17. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. He says, I am praying that God would pour out his spirit on you so that you would know God better. And I'm telling you, this is what you are made to be and do, to know God personally in your experience. Not just to know about Him, not just to know things about Him, but to know Him and be before Him face to face. You know, the Apostle Paul, he's writing to Christians, right? Verse 1, to the saints, the faithful in Christ Jesus. And I'm telling you, it is so easy for us to forget, even as Christians, what we were born to do and be. We start running in circles. I mean, we're running to anything and everything around us. Everything that's within our grasp to fill us and satisfy us and ease the pain of our brokenness and make us whole. And Paul is praying that God would pour out His Spirit so that you could get back into the countryside, so that you could run free and be reminded of what you were born to do and be, to know God Himself. And so I want to talk to you this morning in, in this passage about knowing God. And, and I want us to look at this morning what we need to know and very briefly how, how, we need to, how we get that, how we get that knowledge, how we hold on to that knowledge, what we need to hold on to. So first, what to know. Now, I already said this, but the knowledge that Paul is praying for in this passage is it's experiential. Right? That doesn't mean that knowledge doesn't ha- this knowledge doesn't have content. Of course it does, but there's a difference between knowing about God and really knowing Him. You know, it's kind of hard to see this in the translation that we used this morning, the NIV, because at a quick glance, it looks like there are two prayer requests instead of just one in this passage. It looks like there's one in verse 17 that you would know God better, and then the other in verse 18 where he says that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. But it's really just one request. Literally, the end of verse 17 and verse 18 should be translated more like this, that you may know him better having the eyes of your heart enlightened. Now, let me ask you a question before we go on. What is the difference between knowing God as information and knowing God as sensation? Look, in this room, there are new Christians, there are mature Christians, there are immature Christians, people who've given up on Christianity, right, and and are back in the church after a long time. There are people trying to figure it out again, people who think Christianity and Christians are what is wrong with the world. Um, people are just starting to think, of, think out Christianity and what it means. 
But all of us need the same thing, to know God. Not just as information, but as sensation. Because only when you know Him like that will you begin to actually change in your life. Only when you know Him like that will you find satisfaction and completion in this life. Only when you know Him like that can you start loosening your grip on your career, your spouse, your money, your pleasures, your performance. Why? Because you are strangling those things. I mean, you think about it, you are strangling those things. You are trying to squeeze meaning and comfort and fulfillment and security and intimacy out of all of those different things in your life. But your grip will finally be able to loosen when you realize not just with your head, but with your heart, that you have all of those things. You already have all of those things in Jesus. What does this knowledge look like? Paul gives you three things in this passage, right? Verse 18, he says, Having the eyes of your heart heart enlightened, in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and his incomparably, incomparably great power for us who believe. He's praying that you would know hope, the inheritance, and power. Deep in your heart, in your bones, in your experience. So let's look at each briefly here. First, the hope. Human beings, you know, We are hope-based creatures. We can't help it. It is built into the very fabric of our being. right? Without hope, without some kind of hope, you couldn't have gotten out of bed this morning. The problem is that we often settle for things far too small for our hope, or we settle for things that are going to fail us at some point, fail us in the end, our spouse, our careers, our children, a healthy retirement account, uh, our, moral, our own moral resume, all those good things, right? Great things even, but they're not enough. What you really need is a hope that is big enough and grand enough to capture your imagination for an eternity. And you need a hope that will guarantee to never, ever fail you. Paul says, I want you to know hope, but not just hope generally. The hope to which he has called you, he says. You don't have it printed there for you, but just a few verses earlier, Paul wrote that God's purpose was to bring all things, all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. And I'm telling you, that's big. That's grand. That can capture your imagination for an eternity. He also wrote in those verses that God works out everything in conformity with the purpose of His will. Everything. The good, the bad, the injustice, the pain, the joys, it's being woven together by Him and is being conformed to His will. And then he wrote in those verses that we have a deposit. We have a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. See, that's the guarantee. It's a dep- something that you can count on, something that will never fail you, a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance. Now, I've got to move on because of time, but how would that change you if you didn't just know that as information, but you knew it as sensation? You knew it with the eyes of your heart. And you knew, what if you knew deep in your heart that one day all the wrongs in this world, and in your life particularly, one day they would all be righted? That one day all your loss and all your pain and all your brokenness would one day be mended? That one day everything was going to be the way it was meant to be. That the ultimate spring was coming when everything in heaven and earth is made new in Jesus. I mean, what if that were true? 
And you knew it in your heart. I mean, it would change you, would it not? I mean, it would change how you processed your circumstances. It would change how you ordered your priorities. It would change your life if you really believed that. Let's go on. Second, you need to know that you are God's inheritance. I said that right. Even if you read it the first time and you thought Paul was saying you need to know your inheritance. Because, look, that's not what he's saying. He's saying, I want you to know that you are God's inheritance. Look at it. The riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints. You know, I I wonder, I'm looking at you right now, I'm wondering if you're normal. Um, And by that, I, I mean that you want to know that you have value. That you're significant. You want to know that you matter in this life. Just so you know, I I don't often quote the singer Madonna, but she said something very insightful in an interview when she was reflecting on herself and her career. And she said this, I have an iron will, and all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I'm always struggling with that fear. I push past one spell of it and have discovered myself as a special human being. And then I get to another stage and think I'm mediocre and uninteresting. And I find a way to get myself out of that again and again. My drive in life is from the horrible fear of being mediocre. That's always been pushing me, pushing me. Because even though I've already become somebody, I still have to prove that I am somebody. My struggle has never ended and probably never will. And I hope you caught that, that her fear isn't being bad or failing. Or being horrible. Her fear is being mediocre. Being insignificant. Being forgettable. What terrifies her and drives her is that she might not matter. And Paul is saying, in Jesus, that fear no longer needs to drive you in this life. You. You matter more than you can imagine. You. You have more value than you could have possibly dreamed for yourself. Because God sees you as his inheritance. I mean, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He owns all the mountain ranges. He owns all the oceans. He owns all the planets, all the stars, all the galaxies. He owns the universe. But he sees you. He sees you as his treasured possession. In Jesus, you bring him delight. What if you didn't just know that as information, but you had a sense of that on your heart? Finally, Paul is praying that you would know God's power for those who believe, right? Paul expands on this in in a couple of verses here, and he describes that power at length. He says it's the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, the same power that exalted Jesus to the right hand of the Father, the same power through which Jesus reigns over every rule, authority, power, and dominion, and every title. He is saying that power, that power is for you, and it is at work in you. Do you have a sense of that? You know, I've had a lot of conversations with a, a lot of different people, Christians, not, not Christians, whatever. Just people. And, and one thing seems to be very common. We all want change. We all want to know that change is possible for us. However you might phrase it, and whatever you might be thinking of when you're, you're thinking of change in your life, we all look in the mirror, and in our most sober moments, when we aren't being entirely cynical about life, 
we look and we say, we want to change and we want to be different. Not just on the surface, but we want to be able to, we want to know that we can change deep inside, from the inside out. And Paul is saying, you need, you need a sense in your heart that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in you. And if you get that, you can finally stop saying, God couldn't change me. I'm too much of a mess. I'm too far gone. I've crossed some imaginary line of no return. You can finally stop thinking that way when you have a sense of his power at work in your life. I know this experience has to be different for mothers and for fathers, but I'm a father, so I'm going to speak from my perspective. Um, and granted, other fathers may, may have felt differently about this, but, uh, but we have four beautiful children. Four children that I love completely and entirely. And with all those children, I had this similar experience, right? Those nine months of pregnancy that we went through. I mean, during that time, I knew, I knew with my head that we were going to have a baby. I knew it. Intellectually, I could comprehend it, right? I could see my wife's belly belly growing over time. Um, I went to the doctor appointments. I saw the ultrasounds. I knew what was going on, right? I, I mean, we, we didn't even want any surprises. So we figured out if it was going to be a boy or a girl, and we got rooms ready and built cribs and painted rooms, and we even named our children before they were born. I knew what was going on, right? And this part is going to make some of you think I'm weird, um, but this is just my experience. Eventually, the birth came, right, of our daughter Kennedy and our son William and then Caroline, and then Emma Grace, right? And I knew. I mean, it was the birth, right? But with every single one of those children, it, it didn't really hit my heart in the hospital. It hit my heart when we came home from the hospital, right, when there were no more nurses or doctors or nurseries, you know, and all of a sudden it was us on our own in our little house. And these are our children, I mean, with each one, it was like a trapdoor opened between my head and my heart. I mean, and all of a sudden, what was real in my head became real in my heart. This is my daughter. This is my son. My whole life will never be the same. It became real to me. To some of you, what we're talking about this morning, this is new information. To some of you, this is old information, right? But either way, if it's just information and it hasn't fallen into your heart, it does you very, very little good in this life. Your infinite value to the King of Kings, the hope of a world, a universe that God is going to renew, the power of God to really and actually transform you. I'm asking, do you have a sense of that in your heart? Do you know God like that in your experience? Okay, second, if you don't have a sense of that, or if, like all Christians, you are prone to forget that, how do you get it? I mean, how do you move towards really knowing God, either for the first time or better, as Paul prays in verse 17? There's a three-letter English preposition that shows up in verse 22 that I think really gets to the heart of it. God placed all things under Jesus' feet and appointed Jesus to be head over everything for the church. Look, Christianity does not exist without that preposition. Christianity does not exist without that preposition for. 
I'll come back more and deal more directly with verse 22 in just a second, but stay with me for about two minutes. When Paul writes in verse 17, and look back at it, that he is praying that God would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you would know him better. What in the world does that mean? How does the spirit help you know God better? Okay, Jesus himself, in John chapter 16 and verse 14, he says that the, the spirit's main job, his priority, is to take, this is what he says, to take from what is mine and to make it known to you. See, the Spirit's job is to make Jesus real to you. That's what he does. That's his main job. Not God in the abstract, but to make Jesus shine in the eyes of your heart. That's what the Spirit does. He gives you wisdom to understand Jesus' person and work. He reveals Jesus to you. And here's what the Spirit wants you to see. That Jesus didn't primarily come to be a great teacher though he was. That he didn't primarily come to be an example to you of morality, though he was. That he didn't come to inspire you with love and sacrifice, though he did all of that. Jesus, primarily he came into this world to be a savior, to be a substitute for you, for his people. He came to live the life you could not live. He came to live a perfectly righteous life for you. He came to die the death you should have died. He came to die for you, for his bride, for the church. To know God, to be before his face, to find the freedom of knowing what you are made to do and be. You have to know what Jesus has done for you. I mean, this good news, the gospel, it isn't the ABCs of the Christian life. It is the A to Z of the Christian life. It's everything. It's where you start. It's where you go. It's where you finish. The goal of the Christian life is not to get beyond the cross, but to go ever deeper into it. Only when you do will you begin to get a sense on your heart of your incredible value to God, the hope to which he has called you, and his power that's at work in your life. Now, before we end, let me come back to verse 22 and speak to that a little bit more directly. It says, And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church. Let me read to you from one commentator. The universe is being constrained in its course, bent in new directions for the good of the bride of Christ. As much as our perceptions may seem to deny this truth, the battles that rage, the leaders that rise, the events that occur do not thwart his agenda. History inexorably marches forward toward the triumph of the church of Jesus Christ. He is using all things, including the tragedies of a fallen world, to shape and reshape the world for her sake. The whole creation is being conformed to purposes that serve the glory of Christ's church. This is a compelling reason to be a part of the church. The entire world is Christ's bouquet to his bride, the church. Now, I'll say this quickly, but please pay attention. Jesus came into this world and lived and died for his bride, the church. Not the building, not the institution. The community of broken, messed up people like you and me who are in desperate need of a Savior. That's what he came to do. But the story does not end there. Jesus not only died, but he was raised and lifted up over all things. And even now he reigns over all all things for you, his bride, the church. I've said this to you before, but we have lots of questions that are unanswered in this life. 
and I don't think any of them are bigger than this. How can God be good and in control of all things? How can He be God? And there be such evil, such pain, such injustice, and such loss in this life. I don't want to diminish that question at all because it's a hard question. It's a real question, a question that I cannot answer for you fully this morning. But I do know this. It's the wrong question to take to the Bible. Because the Bible is answering an entirely different question. The question of what a good and all-powerful God is doing about the evil and the pain and the injustice and the loss in this life. And if you are resting in Jesus, Paul is saying that you can know. You can know that Jesus is weaving all the good and the bad. The joys and the pain, the evil and the suffering together for the good of his people, the church. Even if you're not a Christian this morning and don't know if you can believe it or not, that still sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Sounds pretty good to me. And maybe if you are a Christian and you found yourself so beaten up and so broken, running in circles and forgotten what you, who you are, you're probably thinking, all this sounds like pie-in-the-sky stuff. So how can you know that it's true and have a real sense of it on your heart? How can you have confidence that everything that has happened is happening and will happen in your life and the world? It is being woven together into Christ's bouquet for the church. How can you know that? Look at Jesus. I mean, on the cross, it would be very hard for you to find another picture of such gross injustice, evil, abuse, pain, loss, and suffering. The perfect man, all alone, completely deserted, crucified, and put on display for crimes he did not commit. Terrible. But even as Jesus was torn apart on that cross, in Jesus, God was pulling all things together in him. You have hope. Because Jesus lost his father's smile on that cross. You have an inheritance because Jesus gave up his inheritance for you. You have power because he conquered through weakness for you. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you now and pray that you will take the words that come out of my broken and stammering mouth and that you will drive them straight, drive your word straight into our hearts that we will realize that what we desperately need in this life is to know you. Not just to know about you, not just to know you as information, but we desperately need to know you personally, intimately. We need to know you in our experience. Father, we pray that you would indeed pour out your Spirit. Pour out your Spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we would know with the eyes of our hearts the hope to which we were called to, that we are your inheritance, that we would know the power that is at work in us, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. Father, give us your spirit. Give us your spirit, we pray, so that we would not seek to go beyond the cross, but only deeper into it. That we might know Jesus, and that in knowing him, we would know you. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.